2: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
3: This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people just
2: be me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson, rated R, under seventeen not a minute without parent. only in theaters May seventeenth.
4: Uh, ah, I'm Robert Evans. Um, I've, I've introduced the podcast yet again. Um, not one of my best introductions. Not my, one of my worst. Uh, two weeks ago, we had another just shouting Hitler. So you know, if you're if you're a regular listener, this is about as good as it gets um this is of course behind the bastards a podcast about the very worst people in all of history uh and to help me out this week and next week we have uh we have a four-parter for you folks first off i want to welcome jason pargin to the show jason how's it going
1: now that you are far, far more famous than you were in your crack days, mm-hmm. I honestly don't have a sense of how many people in your audience know who I am. And they're like, oh my gosh, that's the crack guy who used to write as mm-hmm. David Wong, who writes the John End novels, versus how many people just have no idea just no idea, just could not possibly care any less.
4: Yeah, it's hard for me to say. I mean, whenever we do live events, and we've done like nine or ten this year between like book events and stuff. I would say like it my my back my like very rough estimate would be like a third of the crowd um has been following my stuff since cracked days so I would guess like somewhere in the 30 to 40% range which is considering the size of the audience pretty good. Jason, you are the author of a whole bunch of books. We were just talking about this before the show, but I'm startled as I try to work on my second novel. I'm startled at the number of novels that you've written while doing all of the other stuff that you do.
1: Yeah, the one that is coming out, the one that I am here promoting is the sixth, uh, called If This Book Exists, You're in the Wrong Universe. It is a part of the John Dies at the End franchise. There are, are now four books in that series, for those of you who have read some of them or have just seen the movie that's out there on streaming. Uh, it came out a decade ago. Yeah. But you can just start with this one if you want. It's it's not not a Game of Thrones situation where you have to have read all of the books. They're they're episodic. You can just now why you would want to start with the new and most expensive one, I don't know, considering all the other ones are you can probably get in a used bookstore for like 50 cents. But from my point of view, yes,
4: it's the freshest one and therefore the best. I, I read it earlier this year, and it's wonderful. I've been reading the John Dies at the End books for like at this point, roughly two thirds of my life. Um, I started reading. I mean, obviously, Jason, you were my boss back at Cracked for years and years and years and years. I, I think I worked there for close to a decade, and you worked there for longer. Um, and then, uh, but but the, you started publishing what became the first book in that series um every it was like an every halloween on your old website this is in the pre-cracked days when you had your own website um you would publish i don't know what was it probably 15 20,000 words something like that every year around halloween um, yeah it was
1: just part of my blog it was like my annual halloween update was this continuing story i was writing it started in 2001 i think
4: yeah yeah which i would have been like uh, 12 or 13 i think when i started reading that series. And I loved it then. I found it like very, uh, very engaging and kind of stayed obsessed with it ever since. Um, and one of the things that's always been interesting to me about it, your, that series in particular, I think one of the things you could call it is like psychedelic horror because it's, it's not just like a horror series, but kind of one of the inciting incidents is the characters take a supernatural hallucinogen essentially. That is kind of the inciting incident of the series. And it's one of the only one of the things that I've always found interesting about your books is that I started reading them before I ever started messing around with psychedelics. And I've continued to enjoy them since, um, which is pretty rare uh, in terms of like encountering people writing about that stuff before you know about it personally and then after you know about it. And I've always been interested about in that in part because you don't do psychedelics. You haven't like actually like taken acid or anything like that
1: no and in fact I've never drank alcohol uh, I have a very addictive personality I get addicted to things very easily and I've been afraid of any kind of drugs or cigarettes anything for ever since I was a youth uh, but no yeah but it's it is very much like I've done a lot of research into them but it's not... To be clear, it's not scaremongering about it's not people took no, LSD no no and, no, and, and no 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 found themselves turning into monsters because there was a lot of fiction written like that back in yeah. the day that people uh, they took LSD and then they became possessed by a devil or whatever it is more of a metaphorical thing but they they take a yeah a some kind of a mysterious substance that lets them kind of see beyond yeah reality and the way that if you were playing a video game and you suddenly glitched through the the world it's kind of like that only with through time and space and um but for those of you who don't read the the film is because there's kind of an interesting story i won't let drag on but they i sold the film rights to it back when it was nothing it it was uh i wrote it on the internet and then had like a print-on-demand publisher selling physical copies of it we sold just a couple thousand of them when don coscarelli Cold horror writer, director, yeah, producer—a a uh,
4: legendary director. Yeah, made the yeah.
1: Phantasm series. Um, Baba Hotep. Yeah, got, got hold of the rights and not only bought the rights but made the movie, which is the rare mm-hmm. part. Lots of people sell yeah. film rights to actually have it get made. To and then it debuted at Sundance in 2012, and the, you know I flew out there and got to be part of q and A Q&A with the cast and all that. So it's it's kind of a crazy success story because at the time this happened in the early 2000s, there were. There were not a lot of people writing stuff on the internet and then selling it as books or selling I, it. Still, they,
4: it still doesn't happen terribly often. <laughs> no, but, but people hear um, famous examples
1: of, like, oh, this guy's Twitter account got turned mm-hmm. into a TV series or whatever. Like, you, yeah. you, hear, you
4: hear more now. You do. Now, but, I mean, I often describe you to people as the first Fifty Shades of Grey, um, <laughs> <Yes. laughs> but I, I bring up the fact that the uh, so much of like the inciting incidents of your series is kind of like based around hallucinogens and like shadow people and all this kind of um, sort of dark occult stuff because. That ties in directly to what we're talking about today. the The subject of our episodes for the next two weeks is the MK Ultra program that the CIA carried out through most of the fifties and early nineteen sixties. Now, most people, I think, are probably like Jason. Actually, what, what, how would you, based on kind of your level of knowledge, casual knowledge, how would you describe what the MK Ultra program was? Here's the thing: it is
1: impossible for me. To separate what I actually know as fact and what I've merely heard in conspiracy theory circles. Yeah. well, Because (laughs) the one conspiracy theory that I do believe in is that government agencies and the true bad actors in society love conspiracy theories.
4: Absolutely. They
1: love that this stuff gets picked up by cranks and the same people who talk about Bigfoot will talk about MKUltra in the same breath. And it's like, well, you know, Bigfoot was actually an MKUltra program and mm-hmm. turned a man into a giant monkey. They love that. They love that it smears all of these things as the this, this stuff of cranks and crackpots when yeah. the reality needs no embellishment.
4: No, it does cuz what the the reality of the MK Ultra program is that the federal government devoted countless resources and essentially like a license to kill to a bunch of scientists so that they could attempt to eradicate the concept of human free will using LSD. Like that's that's what they tried to do. Um and it included uh, an an outrageous number of crimes. And it is, it is a conspiracy. It's just not a conspiracy theory because it's pretty well documented. A lot of the guys who were involved with this have talked at this point. So we know what's happened. Um, so we're going to be talking about that for quite a while here. I do want to start by talking a little bit about kind of the human history of use of psychedelics and even kind of the history of the use of psychedelics in a military context by states. Um, Because all of this stuff actually goes back further than you'd guess. Uh, When we're talking about like actual hallucinogenic drugs, the oldest, like the first thing human beings were taking to consciously make themselves hallucinate was probably, we're never going to get an exact answer on this, but probably either peyote um, and the active ingredient in peyote is a psychedelic protoalkaloid called mescaline um, which has been in use at least like 5,700 years uh, and then you know we have around the same amount of time people have been using hallucinogenic mushrooms uh, psilocybin right that also goes back by some accounts maybe older something like 7,000 years obviously this is based on like people will draw cave paintings of like mushrooms and stuff that they that they took and you can find bits of it and like honey and whatnot things that people like buried with their loved ones it's possible people were taking it's possible that like before we were human beings our hominid predecessors were taking you know uh, peyote and psilocybin right because we know that there are certain hallucinogens that non-human animals and that other apes take so this is probably something we've been doing like longer than we've been human beings
1: And also, this is one of those things where when you look at the entire culture and our mythology and our religion, whenever you have writings of someone who sat down in a field and then had a vision of the heavens opening up,
4: uh,
1: how many of those were actually influenced by hallucinogens or whatever, we won't know. But there's almost no question that they regarded these substances as uh, like a sacred means yeah. of opening up reality to get a direct you know line to the gods or whatever. It's just that in the writings they left behind, they may not mention the part where they they chewed on a certain mushroom to get that effect.
4: Yeah, and it's—I mean—there's other stuff too, like ergot that people. We know the ancient Greeks were very likely um, mixing in a couple of different ways, which is kind of one of the precursors to LSD. There are theories that the the human capacity for religious belief came because. Are, and this is, you know, would be 30,000 years ago. Ancestors took a shitload of psilocybin. Um, there have been studies like the Good Friday study that at least provide pretty good evidence that the kind of religious experiences people have on these drugs aren't any different from other kinds of religious experiences, right? Like they're not—they're not any less real because they're induced by a chemical. Um, they continue to influence people, you know, in in for decades. Um, so yeah, it's there, there's a lot of interesting history there. The first documented military use of what you call an entheogen. And when we're, when we're talking about psilocybin, when we're talking about all of these chemicals. They're all what you'd call entheogens, right? That's kind of the name of the type of thing that we call hallucinogens. Um, the first documented military use of one of these substances was by Hannibal Barca, you know, the guy the elephant guy, right, with the Alps. Uh, in around 184 BC, there are some po- possibly apocryphal reports that he had his men drug enemy stores with Belladonna before a battle so that his enemies would basically be hallucinating when he went in to fight them, which would provide a benefit, right? It's it's not hard to see how that could potentially work out for you. Um, and this is probably copied by the Bishop of Munster in 1672, who actually filled grenades with Belladonna in order to attempt to disperse its poison on the battlefield which is a pretty modern for 1672 a pretty modern way of like using a chemical weapon.
1: Yeah, that's uh, I had never heard that before. Yeah, that it's is pretty a cool. fantastic image. <laughs>
4: yeah. yeah, the bishop of Münster filling grenades with cuz the active chemical in belladonna is scopolamine, which is what US police tried to use for decades as a truth serum. Um but it, it just kind of is a, a moderately powerful hallucinogen that he was trying to disperse via grenade. Now, I don't actually know how well that worked out. It doesn't seem like there's good documentation on whether or not it, it actually had much of a military effect. Um, but the dream that the Bishop of Munster had and that Hannibal Barca had has lingered on in the hearts of military planners for a long time, right? Because obviously... Fighting people is hard, Um, and if you can make them chemically, if you can disperse some sort of substance on the battlefield that makes them not want to or not able to fight, that would be pretty cool. So World War I is obviously when chemical weapons get used for the first time on a mass scale, and, and we all are aware of more or less what happens here. Adolf Hitler, himself a victim of mustard gas, refused in World War II to give approval to the German military to use chemical weapons again as an offensive military tool, right? Obviously, Hitler loves using poison gas, but they're not they're not shooting it off at the battlefield because he knows that it's gonna lead to reprisals and he's seen chemical weapons, you know? Uh he doesn't have a moral principle, obviously, and he's in, you know, um, He's not entirely against the idea, though, of researching more weapons like this. And so during World War II, while the Germans don't use their mustard gas stockpiles, they do invent a new poison, something called sarin nerve gas. Um, And right around the same time the Nazis are inventing sarin, the Empire of Japan is weaponizing anthrax during the war. Now, they actually did use anthrax on China during World War II. They killed thousands of civilians by like, dropping anthrax bombs. They would infect water supplies with. cholera, and their top scientists working at Unit 731, which we'll be talking about at some point in the future, were in direct contact with the Nazi chemical weapons head, a guy named Kurt Blom, who himself tested anthrax on thousands of death camp inmates, mainly to see what would happen, right? This is kind of when we're trying to figure out how to actually weaponize anthrax. A lot of the early studies there come from different concentration camps. Blom had also experimented with the use of mescaline on concentration camp inmates. As a truth drug, he'd forcibly dosed inmates, a lot of them, uh, in huge enough quantities that some of them died. Which is is not easy to do. Mescaline's not a super toxic substance, so if you're killing people on it, you're effectively giving them sometimes thousands of doses. Because um, the Nazis don't really care what happens to these people, they're able to to kind of do that. Um, so the allies are not super aware that most of this is going on at the time. There's a pretty big fog of war. These are very top secret. Obviously they know that Japan is using chemical weapons against China, but they're not super aware of like what the Germans are researching at this point. But what was known was enough that it scared Winston Churchill, and he made a public announcement of his fears that the Nazis were planning a biological weapon attack on the United Kingdom. So he asks the United States for help in building up a defensive stock Pile of weaponized viruses and toxins, right? Churchill doesn't want to use all these either because he's thinking the same thing Hitler is. If, if we use these on the Nazis, then they'll start using stuff on our soldiers. But he wants to have a bunch of scary shit that he can unleash on the continent of Europe if the Nazis start dropping stuff on the UK. You can see like the logic that's going to be a big part of the, the nuclear arms race already kind of at play here. Um,
1: In general, all of history is a series of people saying well, we need to pursue this truly grotesque mission because if we don't, the enemy will, or we suspect they already are. Yeah. But the only reason the enemy is doing it is because they think you're doing it. And I'm sure there's a name for that paradox. But for example, in the last time I was on this show, we briefly talked about World War One, which was a war based almost entirely around a series of nations saying, Look, we better go ahead and just arm up because we know France is doing it. It's like if they, you know we, we might as well just go ahead and go to war now because it's going to happen. Like like, and every country thought this about everyone else. So here it's you can see this weird game theory thing where un, unchecked paranoia about your enemy is a blank check to your people to just pursue madness because after all. What what thing could be too horrifying to use against, insert enemy here, uh, yeah. the Nazis, the communists, the, the terrorists, the, you know, the Muslim terrorists? It, it's like, well, of course we need these advanced, you know, interrogation techniques. Otherwise, you know, how are we going to stop Al-Qaeda? And 50 years from now, you can insert whatever enemy. But that's always been the logic probably going back thousands of years. It's like,
4: hey, normally we wouldn't do this, but... And it, what's one of the things that's most kind of morally complex about this is that it it doesn't always go badly right? World War One, a horrible nightmare because that logic leads to tens of millions of deaths. It also doesn't lead to tens of millions of deaths in, in the nuclear arms race. like Because everybody's got all these weapons and has the ability to end all life, we don't have this big war between the Soviet Union and the United... We have a bunch of little horrible wars, but we don't have this big war. And you kind of... It's the same thing with biological weapons on the battlefield in World War II because they they don't get used in Europe. The Nazis invent sarin and they weaponize anthrax. And as we're about to talk about, the U.S. develops a bunch of horrible shit, but none of it it gets used because everybody's like just kind of too scared to start that. Um, so well, I don't know. I, I don't know what the moral is here.
1: <laughs> well, no, uh, very, very quick note. Um, we do record these in advance. If there has been a nuclear war, yeah. Between now and when this goes up, understand that that's what he just said was based this was pre the bombs being launched. We yeah. we were not aware of it when we recorded this. So <laughs> if, if you're if you're saying, well how you know, how how stupid are these guys? They don't know that the mm-hmm. situation in Ukraine resulted in a nuclear apocalypse. It's because we it it wasn't it hadn't happened when we recorded it.
4: Yeah, if you're listening to this huddled around the ruins of the Chrysler building, Defending off wolves with like crudely made spears that you 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 created out of like scrap metal from light poles. Um, about there was a time an where the world email. wasn't like that. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, then please uh, just mm-hmm. give us. We, we're doing our best here.
4: Yeah. If if you if you live in a society that has lost all aspects of modernity except for the ability to like yell at podcast hosts, um, please please hold up for a second. Sophie deals with enough as it is. Um so yeah uh, you've got these uh you've got these you know um this kind of biological arms race that's is sort of in the background of World War II obviously it doesn't get a whole lot of attention because most of this stuff doesn't wind up getting used and it's it's like fucked up when you're talking about sarin nerve gas and like the cholera and trying to weaponize viruses that's like horrifying for some reason but it's actually not when you think about what's going on it's not any different from any other kind of arms race right you can say that the weaponry is a little more dangerous maybe but like it's uh, it's it's stockpiling killing agents right there's not a massive difference fundamentally in like stockpiling a bomb or stockpiling a bomb that is kills by way of viruses, you know? People are more disgusted by this stuff, but it is kind of the same basic concept. But on February 3rd, 1949, in kind of the early stages of the Cold War, something that was completely new entered the minds of the men plotting their way through this, like, opening stages of the Cold War, right? This is kind of the first new development, totally new development, and, like, conceptions of warfare in, in quite a long while. Um, and it, it starts because a guy named Cardinal Joseph Menzinti, oh, geez, I'm, he's, he's, he's Hungarian. Cardinal Joseph uh, Minzenti was the leader of the Catholic Church in Hungary starting in 1945. And in World War II, he'd been imprisoned by the fascist Arrow Cross Party for his opposition to fascism, but he was also really opposed to communism, right? So when the Nazis lose and the Iron Curtain goes down or whatever you want to say, when the USSR winds up kind of in influence in Hungary, Um, Menzenti's not happy with that either He's actually a monarchist He never really got over the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire So when the communists come to power He resists them too In 1948, religious orders get banned By the government of Hungary uh, the Catholic Church is called a reactionary force, which it had often been. A lot of Catholics had supported the fascist dictatorship that had existed in World War II, um, but Minzenti hadn't. Um, but since he was such a prime, like prominent uh, opponent of the communist regime, he gets arrested by the communists. And they do the thing that like you do when you capture a political enemy, they like beat him with truncheons until he agrees to go on camera and confess to a bunch of crimes. Um, and this is not weird, right? Like having gotten Government thugs beat a man until he confesses to like trying to overthrow the government and reinstitute a monarchy. Pretty normal stuff for like a totalitarian regime can do to do. It shouldn't have been that weird to anybody, but uh, the CIA, like, kind of freaks out over this. So this is a new organization at the time. They've just been formed from the OSS about a year before this. Um, and they panic when they hear Menzinti come on and be like, I was trying to overthrow the government and yada, yada, yada. Uh, and in his excellent book, Poisoner in Chief, Stephen Kinzer writes, quote, They focused on the way Menzenti had behaved during his trial. He appeared disoriented, spoke in a flat monotone, and confessed to crimes that he had evidently not committed. Clearly, he had been coerced. But how? At the CIA, the answer seemed terrifyingly obvious. The Soviets had developed drugs or mind control techniques that could make people say things they did not believe. No evidence of this ever emerged. Menzenti was coerced with traditional techniques like ill-treatment, extended isolation, beatings, and repetitive interrogation. The fear that communists had discovered some potent new psychoactive tool however sent a shockwave through the CIA so this is
1: what i love <laughs> about conspiracies about mind control yeah because the reality is there are so many ways to manipulate the behavior of a person who is weaker than you Mm-hmm. Through pain, through threats to their family, through financial, just bribes. Yeah. You know, and some of the most successful interrogators were not violent. They just offered people the cookies or, or a car or something. Yeah. Uh, that to say, well, my gosh, they developed a magical chemical that you inject in a person, they'll just do whatever you want. They were so enamored with this idea when that's like the oldest means of humans interacting with one another, (laughs) like that predates humanity,
4: humans making other humans do what they want. It says something about these guys that like, instead of being like, oh yeah, they probably just hit him until he did what they wanted him to. Like the thing we do when we want someone to do something. They're like, they must have invented some new drug that's taken over his mind and changed his personality. Um, it It is really like this is the fact that this is the inciting incident of the CIA's mind control program um is in a way very funny and it's also just like this is the whole cold war in a nutshell right this this is what gets us into so many different conflicts and gets like a few million people killed is all of those these things that start with like some guys in a room in DC like misinterpreting something and then freaking each other out, right? Doing that very human thing where everybody's just kind of like yes anding each other into the apocalypse. Especially
1: um, when you have funding that will come to your budget if you can make the case up the ladder yep. that the enemy has blank. That yeah. there's a there's a motivation beyond just simple misunderstanding. Like right. th- th- a lot of money was spent here, a lot of jobs were created. Like you don't think in terms of somebody trying to create a bureaucrat trying to create work for themselves. But they they this was motivated reasoning. Mm-hmm. If, the, if the Russians have this, then we now have a blank check to try to pursue this. And some of it was just people career climbing.
4: Yes, indeed. And you know who else is climbing the ranks of the corporate hierarchy? The people who sponsor our podcasts. Jason, <laughs> how do you how do you how do you how do you feel about Uh, buying gold online from shady websites that advertise through random podcast ads. Is that how you invest your your money? Well,
1: you know, once society collapses gold will be the only valuable currency it just that's right it just makes sense. not not cans of beans and toilet paper that's not Mm, what people will be trading they'll be trading gold
4: yeah no not freeze-dried food or ammunition or or water purification tablets gold the thing that's useful when you're starving (laughs) perfect store of value anyway here's probably ads for buying gold off the internet Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash behind. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.
5: More info now. Mother's Day is coming and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint.
4: We're back and we're talking about what a good store of value gold is. And Jason, if you're looking to diversify your your cash stockpile for the apocalypse, I happen to have a lot of Iraqi dinars. And from what I hear, they're about to blow up. Uh, they're going to get revalued by uh, by President Trump. And um, a, lot of, a lot of money in the dinar these days.
1: Yeah. Once society collapses, basically you're going to want gold and you're going to want Bitcoin.
4: Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, Jason. If people really want to survive the end of days, throw out your water, light your dried food on fire, stockpile dinars and gold. That's that's going to keep you alive when the floodwaters wipe out two-thirds of Florida. That's what you'll want to be carrying with you away as, uh, as as the coastline disappears, is as much gold as you can fit in your pockets. Speaking of things that you can fit in your pockets... Let's talk about knowledge. The CIA. Um, right. I don't know. I did my I did, I did my best there so this moment this cardinal getting like just beaten up until he lies about having tried to overthrow the government it brings absolute certainty to the CIA top brass that the Russians have developed a mind control drug now we're going to get into a lot of gnarly shit here but it's important that it under, that the people who are like freaking out over this and the people who are the people whose freakouts lead to everything that follows are a bunch of Yale and Harvard kids right most of them grew up extremely rich the Dolis brothers who are going to be big parts of this, like are literally hanging out with heads of state when, when they're kids. And that's like most of the early OSS CIA guys. Now some of these dudes had done real gnarly shit in World War II, had been like, like international man of mystery, badass stuff. You know, you do have some of those like cowboys here. But that's not who's actually calling the shots for the most part. Most of the people calling the shots had been like sitting in Switzerland and kind of like making the decisions that determined whether or not spies on the ground lived and died. And now they're sitting in DC um, and they've convinced themselves that an old priest con- confessing to crimes he didn't convince under torture meant that the, S- the Soviets had developed some sort of mind control drug. Um, And there's this, all of this discourse around the CIA, a lot of which is formed by the things they're doing in this period of time, portrays them as I think these guys probably would have wanted to be portrayed as these insidious, dangerous, competent manipulators of public opinion and orchestrators of conspiracies. Now, these are all things that the agency and individuals within it have been over the years, but a life in the shadows plotting crimes against your fellow man doesn't mean that you're like healthy or rational. And it doesn't mean that like the things that you're, kind of conniving your way into doing make a whole lot of sense. Uh, And that's kind of important to keep in mind as this story builds. Now, there's another inciting incident for what we're going to be talking about this week. This one's a little bit happier. It starts in 1936 when chemists from Sandoz Laboratories synthesized lysergic acid diethylamide for the very first time. Um, and one of the guys who's on this project is a dude named Albert Hoffman. He's a research scientist for Sandoz, which is, by the way, the, co- the company who gave us like saturin. Um, or saccharin. Like, that's that's Sandoz. They're a very, very large chemical company. And Hoffman had been tasked with finding substances in medicinal plants that could be purified into different pharmaceutical drugs. They didn't care what the pharmaceutical drugs did. They were just saying, like, find us new chemicals, see what stuff does what, and then we'll try to find a way to sell it. So, in the late 1930s, Hoffman is studying ergot, which is this rye fungus that had been associated with hallucinatory spells. Sometimes people would make, like, bread that had this fungus in it, and then like towns would wind up hallucinating for days. There's a lot of fun stuff that happens in the Middle Ages, probably because of of ergot. Um,
1: There's a lot of it, theories that like the a lot of witch hunts and stuff yeah. gave been traced back to. It's 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 hard to tell what's true and what's just uh, yeah you know, theorizing. But it's the kind of thing that makes sense because you could have it people get it in their whatever in their food supply and not yeah. know that they were under the influence of something. So again, reporting that they had seen supernatural things happening. And from there, that's enough of a witness for them to uh, set a witch on fire because it did not take much back then.
4: Yeah, it does not. And one of the things, the kind of, I haven't taken ergot fungus, but I have taken LSD somewhere around 100 times. And different doses do different things. And one thing that can happen, if you just take a little bit, it's not even that you like hear voices but it's it's that like you your your impulses feel as if maybe they're coming from somewhere else and you can kind of convince yourself that someone is talking to you right? Um, And some people, especially if you're like a medieval peasant, maybe you get convinced it's God, right? And maybe you don't like this lady in town and you've never trusted her and you convince yourself in this state that God is telling you that she's a witch or something like that. There's all sorts of shit that could potentially have been happening here.
1: Yeah, and Um, the one thing you're not going to get on this show is a lot of scaremongering about hallucinogens because you're going to get a lot of terrifying experiments as we get into this. But you have to understand, it is very, very different. One, if you're not paying attention to the dose, but two, dosing people who don't know they've been dosed. Mm -hmm. So when things like set and setting matter so much and how you experience these things, if you're already paranoid or you're already in a place where you're feeling under siege or you think you've got enemies around every corner and you've been dosed with this in your food or whatever and you don't know what's happening to you, you know, and then so you rewind to an er- another era when people didn't know the Hoots hallucin- were even a thing. Yeah, what would you assume? Yeah. You would, of course, assume you were possessed or that you had been, uh, you know, assaulted by the devil or whatever. And so, same thing here. Like, there's a big difference between what these people are doing and the people who use this recreation. Recreationally, we're not trying to scare you off of it. It's just no. that
4: <laughs> the, you're going to see the worst possible. There's actually, there's a degree, we'll talk about this more, there's a degree to which this also kind of makes the case of how safe these are, because a lot of the worst reactions to this are they're giving people the equivalent of thousands of doses at a time, like an amount no one would choose to take. And, like, yeah, people die when you give them 7,000 times, like, a normal dose of a, of a drug. Almost any drug will work that way, right? Like, if you give someone 7,000 times as much aspirin as they should take, they probably will not make it, right? That will yeah. kill them. Or, or um, if you give them 5,000 servings of mashed potatoes all at once, mm. now, they will also die. I, that's That depends on the mashed potatoes. Uh, <laughs> I I—, but- I I put about a stick of butter per potato, so it will take much less of my potatoes to kill you. Um, Really, just a bowl can do it in some cases. Uh so he's trying to Hoffman is trying to synthesize a compound out of rye fungus that's going to work as a speaking of heart disease a circulatory and respiratory stimulant right because this drug one of the things it can do is it has an impact on your your heart rate and your respirations and he thinks that maybe this will maybe he can get something out of ergot that'll do that um and L, the LSD that we have today is his 25th attempt at like pulling a chemical out of ergot that has a medicinal use which is why we call it LSD-25. Now, initially, this substance that Hoffman has found seems to be of very little value. Research on it gets canceled, and Hoffman moves on for five years. But there's something about the drug that kind of calls out to him. He just can't kind of get it out of his head, even though he has not taken it for himself at this point. And so on April 19th, 1943, he decides to try some, and he takes 250 micrograms of acid. Um, and this is like probably a moderate dose. Like, you know, if you actually have ever taken acid, you you buy like a hit or something. And what a hit is, is, is not um, like standardized. Like you probably have no idea how much LSD you've taken if you've taken LSD because you you bought like a drop of liquid that was put on a piece of paper by a dude who like gave it to you at a club, right? You have no idea what 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 you're getting. Um, but this is probably something like four to five hits of acid. Um, in like modern terms. So this is like a, a, a substantial dose, right? This is not like a light hit of the drug. Um, so he doses himself at 4.20 uh, p.m. And at 5.00 p.m. he writes, quote, beginning dizziness, feeling of anxiety, visual distortions, symptoms of paralysis, desire to laugh. Um, and that's the last thing he writes in his journal because after that point he is tripping too hard to write anything. Um, did, he, did you say he dosed himself at 4.20 yeah, he sure did. <laughs> <laughs> it, that is kind of interesting, isn't it, Jason? Um,. So sometimes, sometimes we get these little beautiful synchronicities. So Hoffman has a pretty good trip. It has to be said. Um, it's 1943, so like you can't take your car on the road because there's these wartime restrictions. So he's bicycling home, um, and his his he has an assistant who kind of like escorts him, who's his sober sitter. Um, and yeah, he he recants later in great detail in his book. Quote: Kaleidoscopic, fantastic images. Surged in me, alternating, variegated, opening and then closing themselves in circles and spirals, exploding in colored fountains, rearranging and hybridizing themselves in constant flux. It was particularly remarkable how every acoustic perception, such as the sound of a door handle or a passing automobile, became transformed into optical perceptions. Every sound generated a vivid, changing image with its own consistent form and color." So he's tripping balls here. This is a pretty like this. This is a pretty substantial dose of the drug, um, and it has to be said he has a great time. Like Hoffman will spend the rest of his life as an advocate for this stuff because he finds it like a wonderfully pleasant and powerful experience, and he he becomes convinced that LSD has an incredible potential as a therapeutic drug, and he's absolutely correct in this. Um, acid has been shown to have fata- fantastic potential in a number of clinical trials for treating alcoholism. It can be ext- and. and again, Again, when we say it can treat alcoholism, it can be an antidepressant, it can treat post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, we're not saying you can just take some and it makes it better. Although some people have had that experience in the past. These are all, when we're talking about the clinical trials, these are all giving someone LSD, alongside therapy for like alcoholism or therapy for depression or, or therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and in terms of like why it's useful for this, I'm going to quote from a researcher talking to The Guardian. In depression, people get locked into a way of thinking that is repetitive and ruminative. It's like tramline thinking. Psychedelics disrupt those kind of processes so people can escape from it. And that's why this stuff is useful. And there's there are now studies that show similar promise with substances like MDMA, which seems to be particularly effective at treating PTSD, or psilocybin. And and to get back to the subject of like mushrooms and religion, one of the things that psilocybin has been shown clinically to be most effective at is in hospice patients and people who are like dying of terminal diseases, helping people deal with their fear of death. It's very effective when used properly um, for that. And and so it. It is fair to say that Hoffman was right. This kind of immediate thing he thinks when he takes acid, like "Oh my God, this stuff could be really useful for people," he's absolutely correct. But in the 1940s, there's a lot less known about this, and so the the kind of initial group of people who start taking acid like Hoffman is always going to be an advocate for this stuff and gradually he's going to get other people interested in it but the the first group of people who really gets hard into acid are not scientists and and they're not hippies they're CIA agents and scientists affiliated with the CIA um and yeah, that's that's what's going to happen. In late 1949, an officer of the Army Chemical Corps reported to L. Wilson Green, a director at the Edgewood Arsenal, which is where the uh, the U.S. keeps all of its like horrible chemical weapons that had been building up during World War II. He reports to Green that Sandoz Chemists had created a new hallucinogen. Next, Kinzer writes, Green was riveted. He collected all the information he could find on the subject, then produced a long report entitled, Psychochemical Warfare, A New Concept of War. It can included with a strong recommendation that the government begin systematically testing LSD, mescaline, and 60 other mind-altering compounds that might be weaponized for use against enemy populations. Their will to resist would be weakened greatly, if not entirely destroyed, by the mass hysteria and panic which would ensue, Green wrote. The symptoms which are considered to be of value in strategic and tactical operations include the following. Fits or seizures, dizziness, fear, panic, hysteria, hallucinations, migraine, delirium, extreme depression, notions of hopelessness, lack of initiative to do even simple things, suicidal mania, and one this of the things
1: Yeah, I, just why I wanted to jump in a few minutes ago yeah, about yeah. that we're not scaremongering about these substances because to be clear, when they saw the results, they did not come out and say, "Hey, if you introduce this to the enemy army, they may put down their weapons because they have seen that war is wrong and that life has value because you know they've had a pleasant trip." No, they were thinking purely in terms, oh, this will this will drive them insane. Yeah. They're, they'll tell, tear each other to pieces and then run off into the wilderness screaming before they fall dead of heart attacks mm-hmm. and seizures. Like they were imagining something that would just savage the enemy worse than bullets, yeah. not, hey, we can actually prevent conflict by
4: dosing the enemy and having them just be too, too chill to want to fight a war. And a lot of this is a reaction to there had been this assumption – prior to World War II, that when cities started getting saturation bombed by planes, which are pretty new at the time, the entire population of the city is gonna lose their mind. And right, like they'll be murdering each other in the streets and just like people's, people's brains will shatter if they're forced to endure bombing. And none of that happens. In fact, it turns out that like when you bomb cities, people get really tough and they get angry at you and they don't collapse morally. It doesn't happen, the British don't collapse under bombing, the Germans don't collapse under bombing. For the Japanese to collapse under bombing, it takes the detonation of two atomic bombs. Um, So this is kind of part of what they're looking at is like, well, strategic bombing actually doesn't work for shit. What if we did it with acid? (laughs) Like Maybe that'll work better. Yeah, but it is Um, about
1: trying to make their society break down.
4: Yeah, yeah, that is exactly the goal. Um, and again, you could also—I mean—you could argue that like this is more humane than carpet bombing people. It's it—it's not going to last forever, right? Like it is. You can see how people could make the case that actually this is this wouldn't be as bad as what we w- just did to the Germans. This is a, a, a kinder way to wage war without killing. Um, the 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 argument is made well enough that President Truman agrees. Like, yeah, this is a pretty good idea. And over the following months, he allows a joint protest. Program between the CIA and the US military to get developed. And it's called MK Naomi. Now, the, the reason why it's named this is, and the reason why MK Ultra is named MK Ultra is this is the way the CIA does their cryptonyms, right? A cryptonym is like a name for a project or a, a department or an organization that's supposed to be impossible for you to like tell what the organization does based on the name, right? So MK identifies a project as being run by the technical services staff. These are the guys who developed the CIA's like wacky James Bond devices. Naomi is a nonsense word, and they're all supposed to be nonsense words, right? The second word, MK, ultra, MK, whatever. The second word is just like a random word they pick so people can have some sort of name. So that's why the initial version of this program is called MK Naomi. So for the most part, MK Naomi focused on not just like LSD, but making suicide drugs and assassination poisons But they were also researching defensive bioweapons and trying to figure out like what it would look like if the Russians carried out a biological attack on the United States. In 1949, uh, they carry out a fake biological weapons attack on the Pentagon using mock bacteria. They concluded as a result of the attack that half of the people in the building could have been infected if it had been a real attack. This is kind of seen as stirring enough that the the military brass are like well we need to see what would happen if the soviets attack an american city so the cia and the us military decide to carry out an actual biological weapons attack on a us city now they know that in order to like disperse biological weapons through an entire city's population they're going to need like fog because there's kind of a color to this gas that they're going to be distributing throughout the city. So they decide San Francisco is the right place to carry out a biological weapons attack because they can use the fog to hide. What they're actually doing, it's called Operation Sea Spray, is they're shooting clouds of aerosolized bacteria. Now, the bacteria is supposed to be harmless. The the idea is that you spray this harmless bacteria throughout the city and It's just enough, like it's just enough of a thing that you can test people randomly throughout the city and you can see how far it's penetrated, how many people have been exposed to it, but it's not something that's actually going to hurt them, right? That's that's the idea. Um, and the bacteria performs extremely well, and in fact, the Pentagon concludes that all 800,000 people in San Francisco have been infected, as well as a significant number of people in five surrounding cities. Basically, the entire Bay Area gets infected with this. The problem is that bacteria is kind of like not a predictable thing to dose roughly a million human beings with. You you get some like unanticipated consequences when you do that. And it turns out several people in the Bay Area were particularly vulnerable to whatever bacteria they used. 11 of them catch urinary tract infections from the poison, and one of these people dies. Um, This would be the first time, but not the last time that the United States used biological weapons on its own people to see what would happen which is pretty cool. <laughs>
1: yeah. That, frankly, yeah. An, an outcome no one could have foreseen.
4: Yeah. It's just, we're going to give a million people a bacteria. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Like the, um, the odds
1: that of those million people that a certain number of them are medically fragile or, you know, compromised or whatever, and that it wouldn't be harmful to them. How could they have, how could they have known? How could they you could- possibly have known?
4: You can see that logic you were talking about earlier, though, of like, well, we know the enemy is working on biological weapons, and the enemy, the Soviets, are these, like, godless monsters. They could do anything. It would be irresponsible of us not to try. Some people are going to get hurt, but we have to know how vulnerable our cities are to these weapons. It's the only responsible thing to do. That way we can figure out how to defend them, right? You can see how these guys make the argument to themselves. Yeah, Um, that's that's not my argument. (laughs) That is a
1: rationalization that every bad person in the history of the species has Mm -hmm. made. Because every every serial killer thought they were like cleaning up the streets of because you know they target sex workers and it's like, well, I'm cleaning up the streets of what these women are befouling our men or whatever. Like they've all got this rationalization. I guess not Jeffrey Dahmer. He was trying to create a sex zombie. But yeah, a lot yeah. of them in their minds, they have this thing. It's like, well, I'm just I'm doing to them what they would do to me if they had the chance.
4: Yeah, you, you do get—with the CIA and with serial killers, some of these guys are just at, like monsters, right? You do get sometimes people who just like to cause harm or have this whatever going on in their head. But like most people and most of the people who are involved in horrible acts of evil, like infecting an entire city with bacteria to see what happens— in order to do that have to convince themselves there's a good reason right yeah. like there, nobody nobody monster. wants to feel like a monster yeah there's
1: a monster around the corner that's bigger than the monster mm-hmm. i'm being so the only thing that can fight that monster is a monster uh, and again the monster you're fighting there's a real good chance that that monster acts like that because it is terrified of you mm-hmm. um, because the amount of paranoia in the soviet union about what the united states was doing was
4: yeah. Just, just as and we, will, we will be chatting about the Soviet Union in a little bit and what they are actually doing, because that's a fun story too. But so Operation Sea Spray, obviously you and I can say, Oh, it's pretty fucked up that they did that. The CIA and the US Army consider this a massive win, right? This works out perfectly as far as they're concerned. They have determined how vulnerable cities are. Um, they understand a lot more about how they could potentially, you know, defend against a biological attack. If, from their perspective, this works great. Now the CIA is kind of doing a backseat role in Seaspray they help with the implementation, but most of this is the U.S Army um, because the CIA is a, it's a clandestine Agency, right? So it's interested in this stuff, but it's never going to be deploying full scale military attacks using chemical weapons. That's the kind of thing the Army will do. Um, the CIA is much more interested in kind of more precise stuff than that. And in 1950, the director of the CIA, who at that point is a guy named Roscoe Hillenketter, decides that the agency needs its own d- dedicated team working on mind control technology. The agency launches Project Bluebird, which The Intercept describes as is a, quote, mind control program that tested drugs on American citizens, most in federal penitentiaries or on military bases. And it is interesting that in the, eye, in the eyes of all of the people like doing all of this shit, U.S. soldiers and uh, f- convicted felons in federal prison are the same, right? right. Yeah, like, you, you don't have to care about any of them. You can do whatever to those people. <laughs> um, so that's cool. That's that's. There's nothing deeper and dark there. Now, near the end of 1950, the CIA gets a new director, kind of right after this program starts, a guy named General Walter Smith. And Walter Smith is the guy who brings our old buddy Alan Dulles onto the team. Now, we've done a couple of episodes about Alan and his brother, John Foster. But in brief, Alan is a big fan of Carl Jung. Um, And so he's a big fan of like this kind of esoteric psychology and psychiatry theory that's sort of floating around at the time. And a lot of this is getting mixed in with early research in psychedelics, because this is the period in which scientists are first kind of starting to study psychedelics. And Allen kind of becomes convinced that there are untapped scientific potential for manipulating minds in different hallucinogenic drugs. In the early 1950s, the United States espionage effort in the USSR suffered a number of well-publicized setbacks, and the CIA, the reveal of several prominent double agents, revives these fears that had started when that cardinal kind of uh, came out of Soviet mind control. Uh, Those fears turn into panic in 1952 in an incident described by The Intercept. In Korea, captured American pilots admitted on national radio that they'd sprayed the Korean countryside with illegal biological weapons. It was a confession so beyond the pale that the CIA blamed communists. The POWs must have been brainwashed. The word, a literal translation of the Chinese zinao, didn't appear in English before 1950. It articulated a set of fears that had coalesced in post-war America that a new class of chemicals could rewire and automate the human mind. So a couple of things here number 1 we don't know if the us used chemical uh, or used biological weapons in the korean war the united states says that we did not um these guys the specific confessions these pilots are making sound kind of silly they're talking about like bombs that have like compartments with with like snakes and stuff in them um that it just kind of sounds like the stuff that you might say if you've been tortured. But the United States uses a shitload of illegal chemical weapons in Vietnam, so it's not impossible that we were, in fact, using something. Um, We'll never really know because it's, you know, war crimes and such. It's just a spectacular leap in logic that's being made here is the thing. Yeah, that that whatever they're saying, they're saying because they've been brainwashed and not just hit a bunch. (laughs) Yeah, and brainwashed in
1: some way, that is... um, unheard of, like it's it's new, rather yeah. than they were coerced, or they were tricked, or they thought they did drop, you know, yeah. it's the same thing when recently- Who knows
4: or what they were dropping,
1: yeah. Last year yeah. and it came out, it's like, well, you know, they've got actual Air Force pilots, fighter pilots, saying they saw UFOs. It's like, yeah, and they're also, they're full of crap. They, they probably did think they saw that, but they were wrong, <laughs> or <Yeah>. like, <laughs> they're not- they're not experts at the highest levels. It's like, well, this thing moved in a way that no craft can move. It's like, well, I, like, I, I know you have some expertise as a pilot, but you're also yeah. just a guy. Uh, so you're these guys guy may have thought like, they were dropping chemicals or they may have been dropping some sort of defoliant or something that they thought was, uh, I don't know, or it could, it could have been a rumor that they heard it, somebody
4: else was dropping it. It's always this stuff about like people's minds just aren't this is the thing nobody actually likes to think about like our brains aren't very good at knowing what's happening in the world. Um like it it is very easy to trick us it is very easy for people to like convince themselves of things it's very easy all sorts of things like if you you're a fucking pilot right you're taking in more oxygen than normal because of like the way in which you have to like have o2 flooded into you so that you can survive at that kind of altitude um all sorts of stuff about flying is mind altering including g forces like Yeah, who knows what's going on in their fucking heads. And And soldiers like to make stuff up. Yeah, soldiers also full of shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they
1: they embellish their war stories. Mm -hmm. And this is like, I would probably do it too. It's a thing that's a part of the culture. Yeah. Um, But yeah.
4: So much of this mania is stoked by an American journalist named Edward Hunter. And Hunter is not just a guy writing. uh, He's the guy who, like, he writes an article for the Miami News that is the first time the word brainwashing is used in English. Like, Edward Hunter brings that term when he's talking about these pilots to the United States. So he's like a working journalist He's also a, a, a contractor for the CIA Office of Policy Coordination and a rabid anti-communist. So when he introduces this stuff to the United States, he's not doing it just because he believes it to be true. He is a guy working for the CIA who sees this in like the best interest of the agency. Um, And Kinzer writes like a longer article for a a newspaper called The New Leader, which is also funded by the CIA. The CIA is funding a shitload of newspapers at this time, including a lot of left wing ones. Um, And then he winds up writing a book because the panic he ignites is such a big deal called Brainwashing in Red China. And in this book, he tells Americans they need to prepare for, quote, psychological warfare on a scale incalculably more immense than any militarist of the past has ever imagined. He becomes like because you know, once you once you're the first guy to write about a thing that like freaks Americans out, then you get to be the expert on it, and all of like the big time entertainment media people will start having you on their shows over and over again, which helps you sell your books and brings in more money, and that's what Hunter winds up being for brainwashing, right? Um, and the aven- one thing
1: you cannot do at this point is go back on it because oh, God, now no. that is your brand. Like the mm-hmm. only thing you can do is double down forever.
4: Yeah, that's your fucking meal ticket. Um, so this works well enough that the House Committee on Un-American Activities brings him up. Um, he tells them that the Reds have uh, specialists available on their brainwashing panels. He tells them they are preparing psychic attacks to subjugate, quote, the people and the soil and the resources of the United States, and will use this psychic power to, quote, turn Americans into subjects of a new world order for the benefit of a mad little knot of despots in the Kremlin. Now Pull pull that all right out of his ass. (laughs) Completely. Well, most of that completely out of his ass. As we're going to talk about, the Soviets are trying some weird psychic shit. Um, Obviously, it doesn't work. But yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. So Project Bluebird and Edwin Hunter's or Mr. Hunter's like bullshit leads to the creation. Basically, the the kind of panic over this brings more money into the CIA and more money behind Project Bluebird. And one of the major things that the CIA uses with this new funding is they start creating the very first of what what come to be called black sites, right? These are secret illegal prisons where prisoners can be tortured. And these prisoners are generally people, either spies, Russian spies who are arrested or just people the CIA says are probably Russian spies. There's no due process here, right? So a lot of times they're just like taking people and they've got these people. They can't ever let them out. They're going to kill all of them. And so what they see is, well, we have X thousand number of people all around the world. We can do whatever we want to them. You guys need to test drugs on people. Here's where you do it. Now, Jason, that's a pretty fucked up thing to do. Um, And you're not going to find a whole lot of people who are capable of running a black site prison uh, that tortures people to death with hallucinogens. But thankfully, the CIA had an old bench of guys who were ready to help them. And those guys were Nazis. (laughs) So... They hire General Walter Schreiber, and Schreiber is not a, again, he's a general. He had been the Surgeon General of the Third Reich, where he had masterminded experiments in multiple concentration in death camps, including one where death camp inmates were infected with gangrene and cut open so the progress of the disease on their bones could be watched. Now, Schreiber had been arrested by the Soviets for obvious reasons, and he had been briefly imprisoned, but they had eventually agreed, probably in their own kind of project paper clip thing to let him become a professor in East Berlin um, but he escapes he gets away to the other the American side of Berlin uh, and winds up in the Army's hands and when the US Army confirms oh we've got the the Third Reich's former Surgeon General rather than be like, well, this guy should probably go to prison, right? <laughs> you know, maybe we, should, maybe we should deal with this man. They send him to one of the CIA's Project Bluebird black sites because they're like, well, this guy is great at the job that we're already starting to do. Um, well, I think that's a great
1: example of where the Americans said, look, the Soviets tried to cancel this guy
3: mm-hmm.
1: because of his views, mm-hmm. and we don't believe in that. It, it's like it's cancel like, no, You should, you <laughs> yeah, should have a chance to Schreiber. redeem yourself mm-hmm. by doing the exact same thing for us. Yeah.
4: it's like Louis C.K. getting to tour again, right? That's where Walter <laughs> Schreiber is. You know, he has his little. He gets canceled by the woke mob for running some death camps, but now he's back at Madison Square Garden. Um, which is a CIA black site on the outskirts of West Berlin. So he helps them set up a bunch of secret black sites all across Western Europe uh, where CIA agents can torture without being observed. And I'm going to quote from Poisoner-in-Chief here. This set a precedent that marked a breakthrough for the CIA. By opening prisons, the agency established its right not only to detain and imprison people in other countries, but to interrogate them harshly while they were in custody without regard for U.S. law. So successful was this network of prisons in West Germany that the CIA duplicated it in Japan. There, Bluebird interrogation teams injected captured North Korean soldiers with drugs, including sodium amyltol, a depressant that can have hypnotic effects, and with three potent stimulants, Bidzadrine, which affects the central nervous system, coramine, which acts on the lungs, and picrotoxin, a convulsant that can cause seizures and respiratory paralysis. While they were in the weakened state of transition between the effects of depressants and stimulants, CIA experimenters subjected them to hypnosis, electroshock, and debilitating heat. Their goal, according to one report, was to, quote, induce violent cathartic reactions, alternatively putting subjects to sleep, then waking them up until they were sufficiently confused to be coerced into reliving an experience from their past. Now, I I don't think that's very ethical behavior, Um, but you know what is ethical, Jason? Is this a transition to an ad break? Yeah, this is a transition to an ad break, Jason, because the sponsors of this podcast, will they give you Benzedrine? Yes, but you're going to know that you're getting pure speed if you buy Benzedrine from them. You know, they're not going to dose you like you're some North Korean war captive um so uh, enjoy bensadrine the evidence keeps pouring in at this point the facts are undeniable it's an open and shut case monopoly go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game millions of people pass go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play.
2: it just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17, not a minute without parent, only in theaters May 17th.
4: We're back. Ah. Uh, what a good time. We're talking about Project Bluebird. Now uh, b- very briefly <laughs> let me interject. I we both realized
1: that. Robert is, is skipping across incidents that each one could be its own book. <laughs>
4: each one is su- like a historic work, crime? He three
1: sentences a, a a prison they ran for a long period of time and the things that went there, and he has to briefly summarize it because that's all just the part of it's just one block in the tower of 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 yeah. MK Ultra. They're uh, just getting
4: started here.
1: Yeah, it, this um, is this was a lot. We. Are doing our best to do it justice, but this is a sprawling thing that went on for how long? Um,
4: this is like close to twenty years. Uh, yeah, that we're talking so, about it, it, um, it's.
1: We're simultaneously going very long and also hopping from horror to horror almost too quickly to
4: fully absorb it. Yeah, to really let this stuff hit. Um, and it's it's like they don't find anything. Like Project Bluebird, they don't find a truth serum. They have what they think are like intriguing results, but they don't find ways to like actually force people to give up useful information. None of this works well, but they all remain convinced that like it's building to something. And the Project Bluebird experiments eventually uh, split off into Project Artichoke, which is like an even more well-funded and elaborate like program to attempt to find a perfect truth serum. One of the guys in charge of Project Artichoke is Morse Allen. He's a CIA agent who is obsessed with mind control, and he's pretty good friends with Alan Dulles. In, the ni- in 1950, he had advocated for the creation of a, quote, electro sleep machine that could force people into a trance. Um, it was basically like shocking people into like a, a half sleep trance so that you could wipe out their memories. No one knew if this would be possible, but this was like the only thing Morse Allen wanted to see in the world. In 1952, he was part of a three-man team that traveled to Villa Schuster in West Germany to test, quote, dangerous combinations of drugs such as benzodrine and penthetol natrium on Russian captives under a research protocol that specified disposal of the body is not a problem. Because um, again, they, we don't know how many people they're testing this on. We don't know how many people they're killing. But one thing the CIA, one of the things that they're saying about these black sites is, don't worry. All of these people we're testing on are going to die, and we, it's it's not a problem. We'll figure out how to get rid of them for you.
1: Now, incidentally, if you, you watch movies, thrillers, even cartoons from the 50s, 60s, 70s, a lot of this stuff like hypnosis, mm-hmm. hypnosis machines, these are tropes in those movies from that era. That I don't think people mm-hmm. realized that was based on this. It was based on what came out in the government's actual attempts to make these things.
4: Yeah. There was, and these, again, one of the things you have to keep in your head while you're reading about all this, there were a shitload of of highly trained people with, like, doctorates and millions of dollars in funding behind them who truly believed mind control poisons were a real thing, Um, that that, that this was a thing that they were going to figure out how to do. They would not have put all of this work into it if they didn't think they could really do it. Um, Now, obviously... All of the experiments they're doing, this is a direct violation of what's called the Nuremberg Code, which required that voluntary, well-informed consent in a legal capacity is a necessary prerequisite for experimental patients, right? You cannot, as a result of how bad, like, all of the horrible experiments the Nazis do in concentration camps, we make, we, like, the international community writes out a thing being like, this is something you cannot do, and we... After we write the Nuremberg Code, we use it to convict and execute seven Nazi scientists, but we never incorporate it into U.S. law, right? It's never actually illegal for the United States to violate the Nuremberg Code. We prosecute and kill people under it, but we're also like, well, why would we? We're not going to handicap ourselves by signing on to that shit. That's not a good idea. Um, Yeah, because the Russians are probably breaking it. So Sure, of course. Yeah. (laughs) So we've got it too. Yeah. which, yeah. Anyway, it's it's cool how all of that works. It may have part of their willingness to. Break the Nuremberg Law may have been all of the Nazis that they hired. You do have to keep that in mind too, which is also a thing that's being done on both sides. Um, But yeah, internally, the need to replicate Nazi war crimes using Nazi scientists was always justified by the incredible danger of Russian mind control and brainwashing technology, which the CIA believed was advancing at a rapid rate. In a speech at Princeton University in early 1953, Alan Dulles warned that communist spies were everywhere and so well trained and that they could turn an American mind into, quote, a phonograph playing a disc put on its spindle by an outside genius. Um... (sighs) That's, 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 that's there, Alan Dois.
1: There's a bit of projection there because yeah. they themselves would love of course a machine they would. or a chemical or a practice or a protocol that would allow them to do that with other human beings, to just wind them up and make them say the words come out of this guy's mouth, this politician, this Central American politician, whatever. We dose him with this, this injection and he says whatever we tell him to say and, and we just control him like a puppet. So the the fear Of the bad guys having that technology is a little bit of them (laughs) revealing their own wishes there.
4: Yeah, and it's um, it's it's kind of an open question as to how much of Alan Dulles believes everything that he's saying, that the Soviets are actually at advance, and how much of it is that, well, this is just something I want, and the way to get it is to claim that the Soviets are making it.
1: We, and for those of you who are, are new to the show, relatively new, I was on the episode on the Dulles brothers. Yeah. We did two-parter, part, two par- three-parter?
4: Two par- two three parter? I, th- I think it's a three-parter. There was it quite was a, a lot, lot to say about those cool dudes. But there's
1: two; those two men, the point of that episode and why I wanted to be on it, are two of the most influential people in the history of the modern world and most people don't. If you know their names, you only know it in passing, like you briefly heard it in history class or whatever. The Dulles Brothers were a couple of the architects of the world as it yeah. exists today. Like this and is it, just one piece of it.
4: Yeah, and, and everything Allen is doing here, because Alan is not an on-the-ground guy for MK Ultra. He's not like signing off on specific programs he's not really even signing off on specific torture prisons he's just kind of generally saying keep working on this i'll make sure you keep getting money keep working on this and then every now and then he'll read like a paper um cuz again he's like he's like the he's 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 the he's he's not the he's not the execution man, right? He's the idea guy, you know, he's the, he's the big picture sort of fellow. Um, and so when we talk about the question of like, does he believe the Soviets are on the verge of all this? Um, I think one thing that's useful to ask is like, what were the Soviets doing at the same time? Like what actual mind control research does the Soviet Union uh, involve? And is there any way in which it could justify all of the horror the CIA does? Now it's true that the Soviet Union had experimented with mind control. Um, It's possible they put more than a billion dollars into the research, although that is hard to say accurately. Um, But, you know, the CIA, as we've started talking about and we'll be talking about, is obsessively focused on chemicals, right? The CIA believes there is a specific physical drug that if we figure out how to dose it right or we figure out how to administer it right, it will allow us to brainwash and reprogram human beings. The Soviets don't really spend much time on this kind of thing. Instead, they focus Focus on what we might be comparatively called cheerful nonsense. Um, a, a common belief early in the Soviet Union is that, and this is stuff that starts out in like 1919, Soviet scientists, uh, a number of them think that there's there's this idea that thoughts are like a physical thing, right? Like thoughts are a kind of like, there's, a, there's like electrical waves and stuff. And this is true in your brain. And so kind of from that there's this idea that since thoughts are something physical that can be detected and monitored they can probably be altered too right and maybe you can change the way people think by changing the waves in their brain Um, and they kind of take from this that like well there's there's probably like people who can tap into those waves and alter thoughts and this kind of leads the Soviet Union to put a shitload of money into psychic research now the the earliest like Examples of this are animal research, which were con- con- like, so there's an animal research program conducted in the earliest years of the USSR by a guy named Vladimir Durov. And Durov claims that he's figured out how to carry out su- he's carried out successful tests of telepathy on animals, right? Durov claims, I figured out how to manipulate the minds of animals. Now, Jason, you wanna guess what Durov's jo- job prior to being a Soviet psychic scientist was? Uh, Worked in a circus yeah he's a circus clown (laughs) um yeah so circus clown vladimir durov uh becomes the 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 kind of the center of the early soviet uh, mind control experiments wait wait, did he really work in a circus yes he no he's a circus clown jason oh i thought you actually knew were you just guessing I was guessing because I yeah he's an actual... like a Soviet
1: circus and a guy <laughs> no. like, I thought he was like an animal no. like an elephant it, trainer guy it, and he thought hey I've mastered I'm I'm the tiger whisperer look
4: he uh, is a circus now I think he's the kind of circus clown who is working with animals right because like that like rodeo clowns a big part of their job is distracting animals um, but he's a, you know, he's a clown like that's his literal his actual CV is circus clown. <laughs>
1: And the reason I came to mind is because, like the Tiger King guy, like anybody who thinks they can talk to animals. If you people have seen the Tiger King documentary, uh, Tiger people are, are all nuts.
4: Yeah, they're cra- they're like, lunatics, dangerous people. There's a
1: specific type of crazy that comes with working with big dangerous animals, and anybody who goes out and like they start to market themselves as. I can control animals. Like I can talk to them or that guy that got eaten by the bears. Cause he thought he could commune with mm-hmm. the bears. Great. It's like a specific personality type that I don't fully understand it, but there's something that drives people a little bit nuts. And so I can just imagine this guy marching into an, an office
4: in the like, hey, or whatever. I've, mastered,
1: yeah. I've mastered the ability to with my mind, with the power of my mind to control the squirrels, all manner of animals
4: and that is that is pretty much what happens i'm going to quote from the la review of books here in 1919, during a conference hosted by the Institute on brain research, of Brain Research on Mental Influence on the Behavior of Animals, the neurologist and psychiatrist Vladimir Mikhailovich uh, Bektorev presented Durov's dubious research to his colleagues and subsequently conducted similar experiments on human beings. Their results, which were never replicated, led Bekterev to think that the mental effect of one individual on another is possible at a distance through some kind of living matter, most likely through hertz waves. Bekterev's wave theory was further corroborated by a third man of science, an electrical engineer named Bernard Kaczynski. Kaczynski claimed that the transmission of mental information at a distance is the same electromagnetic as in ordinary radio communication, just thus giving telepathy a supposedly dependable scientific foundation. And you can get why people could fall for elements of this radio is pretty new at the time. Um, it's it, it, if you're able to like send waves that include people's voices around the world. And that's the thing that when you were born, people couldn't do why um, it's not that crazy to think like. Well, we, there's probably some way to do that with thoughts, right? Like, that's not an inherently unreasonable thing to try, you know? Um, so it, it is important, like, as silly as this is, and as funny as it is that this starts with a circus clown, it's not unreasonable that you would want to, like, see, well, do thoughts work like radio waves? Is there some way to, like, intercept and change thoughts as they fly through the air? Is that a thing that people can do? Um, and of course it's not. Um, if you if you are interested in the history of Soviet pseudoscientific mind control, I can recommend Recommend the book *Homo Sovieticus* by Vladimir Wil- Wilminski. Uh, but the short of it is, nothing they do works. Like it does not work at all. What we know though makes it all sound decidedly—it's not the same as what the CIA is doing. Because as far as I can tell, for all of the different messed-up things the Soviet Union's do does, they don't have a, pl- a program where they are like injecting poison into random people. Uh, in order to see if it will let them control their minds. And I think part of what makes this evident, like the, the relative banality of their, of their mind control research, is the primary real world application of Soviet telepathy research. On October 8th, 1989, after the Soviet pullout from Afghanistan and just a month before the fall of the Berlin Wall, Soviet Channel One played video of a licensed physician who had previously been a hypnotist for the Olympic weightlifting team. He led viewers of Soviet TV through what was effectively a series of meditations, telling them to drink water and trying to get them to feel better about the government. His stated goal was to, quote, calm a land beset by turbulence and heal the body politic. Um you may recognize from your Soviet history that this does not work out. Um, so, however, and we don't, you know, the, we have less access on some of the details of this program than we do about the CIA's MKUltra, although not a tremendous amount less, but it is probably worth saying that the, CIA, that the, the, the KGB's mind control program is not as extensive um, or as nightmarish as the CIA's, in part because it's just kind of based on a fundamentally sillier thing, Right. Like they're trying to do psychic stuff, and that's just a little bit less scary than trying to drug people,
1: but I think there's a thing where whatever the spies or were who whatever they were bringing back to them, we have this thing in the USA and maybe just just the way it has to be in like intelligence circles where you almost portray the enemy as like bond villains, like you assume that they're so far ahead of the curve in terms of what they can do or what they're capable of. You know, or you'll get headlines about China's latest direct energy weapon or or whatever. And the truth is none of these countries can spend even a fraction of what we can on stuff like this. And we saw so much of this during the war on terror, like the fear of a dirty bomb. Like that was all you heard about for a while. And until finally somebody came out and said, look, if they're a dirty bomb the damage would be done by the initial explosion. And that's pretty much it. Like, like packing a bunch of low grade radioactive material into it, a box and putting some C4 inside. Like that's just not much of anything, but it doesn't matter. Cause it's like, we just assume that terrorists can easily get hold of nuclear material. We just assume they can easily get hold of nerve gas. And it's like, Actually, no, it's what we always attribute way more abilities to them than what they actually have. And during the Cold War and at the height of the Cold War, this was at truly crazy levels with the Soviet Union. Like yep. the, the way we talked up the capability of everything from their tanks to whatever secret stuff they were they were working on, um, you know, space based weapons, whatever. You know, like it, it was always any rumor like, well, we've. You know, that, that you would, if it came from your own government, you would laugh it off. Like, well, we've got a team of psychics who can mind control you from the other side of the planet. We're like, oh, okay. But no, when it's the Russians doing it, it's like, oh my gosh, we and, need and our for, team of
4: psychics to, to counter an them. For example, of like how deeply some of that belief managed to last, in 2007, the Department of Homeland Security signs a contract and pays for Soviet psychoecology research to create a psychic criminal detection system to fight terrorism. Um, so we actually get tricked by this stuff. Like thirty years after, or like, twenty years after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, it's pretty well, funny. And
1: yeah. we've dismissed the idea of these energy weapons, but of course, the weapon that caused Havana Syndrome—very mm-hmm. real, the I'm absolutely
4: sure. real weapon that caused um, Havana that's why, Syndrome. <laughs>
1: that's why, like, the Russians are winning so easily in Ukraine because they have yeah. this this mind beam that can debilitate you from with this invisible energy.
4: Yes that that's that, that I mean where I think everyone listening is aware of sweeping Russian successes in Ukraine due to their their laser energy technology. Um, But yeah, so, you know, that's what the Soviet Union is actually working on. They do not have a mind control serum. They're not really working on a mind control serum. They are paying people to sit in rooms and like try to talk to dogs with their brains. Um, Meanwhile, the CIA is being kind of steadily driven into mania by a steady drip of disinformation about communist brainwashing. Um, And they decide they've got to bring in a scientist to help really take, like, clean up some of these programs they're working on and allow them to actually close the mind control gap with the Soviet Union. And they settle on a young man named Sidney Gottlieb. You're going to hear
1: this name a lot.
4: He is, he is all over this motherfucker. So Sidney was born on August 3rd, 1918 in New York, New York to Hungarian Jewish immigrants. He came into the world with a club foot so severe that he couldn't walk for the first years of his life. His mom had to carry him everywhere for most of his childhood until he was able to finish a series of three brutal operations. Sidney took his first steps without leg braces at age 12. He would go on to be a gifted folk dancer and to live an extremely active life. And his story would be more satisfying if not for how his parents afforded the operation that gave him his legs. The Gottlieb family owned sweatshops in the garment industry, which are some of the worst of the sweatshop family. Um, We don't have a lot of detail about his family's sweatshop, but it is not a nice place. And as a young man, Gottlieb joins a campus chapter of the Young People's Socialist League because he's so disgusted by his dad's sweatshop. Um. So, like, this part's not really his fault, but that's always fun. Uh, when when sweatshop money is what pays for your child's surgery. Now, for his own part, Gottlieb struggled with a stutter, which he only corrected later in life. He rose above these challenges, though, and he was a really good student. He graduates, he uh, enrolls in New York City College, he does well there, but Sidney decides that he wants to pursue a career in agricultural biology, which eventually leads him out of the city for the first time at Arkansas Tech. Despite his strictly urban roots, he fits in well there, and he's described by his classmates as, quote, a Yankee who pleases the Southerners. In general, across the decades of his life and career, basically everyone who meets this guy agrees that he's a very pleasant man. Sidney's kind of a hippie, right? Like, he is a back-to-the-land dude. He likes farming. He likes taking care of his goats. He likes folk dancing. Like, he's a, in everything but his job for the CIA, like a sweet kind of hippie dude. So he eventually gets his doctorate in biochemistry at the California Institute of Technology. He marries the daughter of a preacher named Margaret Moore, She'd been raised in India as a missionary, but had discarded dogmatic faith in her religion uh, for kind of a more agnostic, pan-spiritual sort of thing, and Sidney's in a similar position. He's proud of his Jewish heritage, but he's not really a practicing uh, Jew, and both of them are seekers, right? Like, they're kind of interested in Eastern religion, they're interested. They don't, like, give up entirely the religions they're raised with, but they they have, and this is, you know, pretty common at the time and now, like, they have this kind of syncretic attitude. Towards, towards all of this stuff. And Sydney's going to always be a very curious, open-minded guy when it comes to this sort of thing. At first, Sidney's seeking leads him to work for the FDA, where he tests drugs in a boring, safe, and legal way. Next, he does some plant research for the National Research Council, and along the way, he and Margaret, like, buy an unpowered cabin near Vienna, Virginia, and they start a goat farm, which is where they raise their children and are going to live most of their lives in this kind of, like, off-grid goat farming community. In addition to his interests in religion and dancing, Gottlieb starts to become fascinated with early reports of psychedelic research. In the summer of 1951, Alan Dulles makes the decision to hire Gottlieb to help with Project Artichoke. Now, during World War II, Sydney had been unable to serve because his foot's all, you know, hurt. Uh, and this, he he he, kind of had this. At least his biographer makes the argument that like this is part of why he decides to join the CIA is that he had this desire to serve his country that he hadn't been able to actually do during the war. Um, and Alan kind of, I, Alan is pretty good at manipulating. Alan sees this in Sydney, and part of the pitch he makes to Gottlieb is like, "Hey, you know, you you missed out on." fighting for your country back during that war, but we're in another crisis point here, right? This secret war we're fighting with the Soviets is just as important as anything that happened in World War II, and now we do have a place for you. So this is your chance to serve your country. Dulles, and part of why he may have been so good at kind of manipulating Sydney is Dulles had been born with a club foot too. Um, They both kind of had that thing in common, weirdly enough, which is not a super common thing, and maybe that's a little bit of how Dulles kind of is able to get inside Sidney's head, but he seems to be pretty good at at understanding Gottlieb. Um, It also may have helped the two men understand each other, uh, Sydney is almost immediately made chief of the new CIA chemical division, and he's given a free hand and budget to explore the concept of a truth serum. One of the first tests conducted under Gottlieb's command is a series of chemical tortures at a black site in the Panama Canal zone on a Bulgarian politician named Dmitry Dimitrov. He'd given info to the CIA in the past, but then his handlers had become convinced that he was about to start working with the French, so they had kidnapped him, let the Greeks torture him for six months, and then sent him to a secret prison in Panama. So this was their guy. They don't even think that he's going over to the Soviets. They think he's working with their allies, but they still send him over to get tortured in Greece. And then he winds up in Panama where Sidney Gottlieb is asked like, hey, help us figure out how to like chemically torture this guy so he'll give up information on who had hired him. Um... In early 1952, a CIA agent in Panama wrote that because of his confinement, uh, Dimitrov, quote, has become very hostile to the United States and our intelligence operations in particular. This was seen as a perfect chance to try the new artichoke techniques. The CIA under Gottlieb works on Kelly for three years and whatever they did to him, we've destroyed the record um but this guy dimitrov kelly is kind of the nickname they have for him in the in the files he survives and he does try to go to the media and talk about the fact that he's been in a cia secret prison being tortured and so like the news media sees this bulgarian politician saying that he's been in a cia black site for years and they're like they call the cia and are like is this guy legit and the cia says oh no of course not and so Nobody covers this guy's life story.
1: (laughs) And as evidence, all of the records are gone. Wouldn't we have records if we had done that? Instead, all we have is this barrel full of ashes. (laughs) Mm
4: -hmm. Um, It's also worth noting that it is later proven he had never been planning to go to the French. Um, They were entirely... they They just destroyed this man's life who had been working for them for absolutely no reason. And that's going to become a really common story for the CIA under Gottlieb. But Jason... That's all we got time for today.
1: Yes, <laughs> we've barely gotten started. We have, we have arrived um, at the beginning of MK Ultra. After yeah, this yeah, we, episode, we are but, almost at the beginning of MK Ultra, um, and this and this could have been much much more just getting to this point. There's, yeah, it's a, a lot. It was a whole thing a because it starts in in the history. 1940s. But when yeah. everybody thinks of MK Ultra, they're not thinking of 1943. They're thinking of the stuff that happened going forward. Um
4: we probably well, yeah. could have done a two-parter just on like the army's chemical weapons experiments and stuff or biological weapons experiments in World War II and shit. Like it is yeah. there's so much going on here. But I think and this gives people we'll... <laughs> good context as to what's happening. Jason, you wanna give them context as to how they can buy your book?
1: Anywhere, anywhere that sells books, aside from like grocery stores and stuff. Again, the title is: If this book exists, you're in the wrong universe. Um, if you want to keep up with me, my name is Jason Pargin, P-A-R-G-I-N. Type that into almost any social media platform, and you will find I'm on there, including TikTok. I have
4: become TikTok famous in the last six weeks. So I, I have been see- watching your TikToks. Um, very erotic, I have to say. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and yeah, and by the way, as as we sit here and talk about how foolish it is that you could mind control someone, the fact that I sat for four straight hours scrolling through TikToks, that's how I use my total freedom <laughs> of mind. Now, the idea I, that you could be brainwashed by some sort of advanced technology is ludicrous.
4: It is it is funny that so much of what these the CIA was trying to do a number of people have figured out and states have figured out how to basically do by just like fucking with people on social media um, that's that's good that's a good sign <laughs> yeah and, the th- and all the
1: talk about the well someday they'll have advanced techniques to make like deep fakes and they can have like a fake Barack Obama confess to somebody it's like you realize just putting that on an extremely blurry JPEG with like comic sans like that will that will spread around facebook in 20 minutes with no no source or deep fakery or anything just
4: yeah that i i i have long been of the opinion that like nah deep fakes aren't gonna be what destroys us like we're we're already well past that being the thing i'm worried about (laughs) it's not required it does not have to be that sophisticated no anyway um but your book is very sophisticated people should check it out um and uh I have a book, too. It's called After the Revolution. You can also find it wherever books are sold. This has been Behind the Bastards, part one of the MK Ultra series. We got three more coming for you, so s- s- strap in and take a shitload of acid. Take enough acid that you're just high for the next 14 days. Um, that's probably a good idea.
5: Behind the Bastards is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever
2: you get your podcasts.
4: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy.
3: To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit LambdaLegal.org. That's LambdaLegal.org.
0: You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause.